the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Good afternoon, everybody. Excuse me. Welcome to the Sunday Space Show program. I'm your host for the day, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, sorry for the delay, and uh, we're up and ready to go. Our guest is Charlie Schaefer of Celesta. More about that in just a minute. A couple of very, very quick announcements. We'll be looking at the 60-minute format today. Uh, if you do want to give us a call, it is 866-687-7223. Email, of course, drspace at thespaceshow.com. While I have yet to do the newsletters for the coming week, I will do them after our live broadcast today, uh, I will tell you that Zimmerman is back with us on Tuesday, and uh, Hotel Mars is, as of yet, undecided, not a strange place to be in. Courtney Stad, many of you will remember Courtney from many years ago. He's with um, uh, Humanities and Space and doing things, and he's resurrecting back into the public limelight, and I'm glad for that. And Courtney will be back with us Friday, March 1st. Old-timers certainly know Courtney, and uh, former longtime listeners of the Space Show will know him as well. Marshall Martin is back as a full-time guest uh, with a very special program on Sunday, Marshall. Uh, March 3rd, Zubrin with his brand new book is out on March 5th, and Melody Ishar, the uh, architect for Ionis, or Ionis, however you pronounce it, for space architecture is returning March 8th. And a very special program for March 10th on Sunday with a high school gal who contacted me out of the clouds. She is in Las Vegas. She wants to study finance as she goes to school next year at UNLV, and she wanted to do space survey questions with me about commercial space, and she was way, way, way impressive. So after doing her survey and introducing her to a space attorney that I knew for the legal aspects, I invited Jennifer to be a guest on the show and uh, this is a must-listen-to show as well. I think all of them are must-listen-to. But come on, she's a high school gal, and she wants a career in space and finance. So join in and talk to her about her questions and and her understanding of uh, commercial space. Uh, next Sunday, January 10th, excuse me, March 10th at uh, noon. Uh, Charlie Schaefer is our guest today, and uh, we have a few uh, announcements uh, you can hear this show live, like right now. You can hear it when it's archived on our MP3s on our web ma- website and on most uh, common uh, podcast servers. And you can download the show from our website or the podcast as well. Everything we do is archived, 
So those are the ways you can hear all of our shows. Don't forget we still have a store for Space Show Logo Wear. You get there to the store by clicking on Pepper, listening to the Space Show, and uh, hopefully you'll find some items of interest. Your feedback, even if you don't buy anything, is important. And if you have suggestions for different products, let me know, and we'll see if we can't do it. Uh, the other big important announcement I want to make is that we are a nonprofit 501c3, and our parent is One Giant Leap Foundation, and uh, we're listener-supported radio. So we hope if you like what we're doing, you will contribute and support us and help us do great programming. And our guest today with Charlie Schaefer, he's a lot more than just Celestis. I mean, the, he's the shoulders that everybody in commercial space, space are building upon. Maybe we'll get him to repeat a little bit of that decades-old story now. But um, uh, for those of you that are younger or newcomers to commercial space, you may not know that story because commercial space wasn't always like it was or is today or hoping to be. So we would appreciate your support. There's a PayPal button in the upper right corner of our homepage. And, um, you know, that's the easiest way to support us through PayPal if you use Zelle, it goes directly to our Chase Bank account at david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. And if you mail a, a hard check, it's made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation. And it goes to our Las Vegas address. That address is on our PayPal button. Please don't make checks out to the space show. Chase Bank is telling me there are new audit rules. Really? Strange. Everything's new these days. And um, the checks have to be made payable to the name on the account and the name on the 501c3 corporation, which is One Giant Leap Foundation. And I really hate to go through the process of returning a check made to the space show because Chase Bank won't accept it. So um, if you do use a check, please make sure it's made payable to our parent, One Giant Leap Foundation, and we certainly do appreciate that. We do have sponsors, and real quickly, they are Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space in Luxembourg, National Space Society, Charlie's company, Celestis, has been a sponsor since we started this program, Astrox Corporation, Dr. Ben Arroyo, the Space Foundation, and John Jossie's great space settlement blog, Space Settlement Progress. If you want more information on sponsorship or billboard messages like Dr. Ben Arroyo uses, please email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Um, Charlie Schaefer uh, is with us. He's internationally recognized high-tech entrepreneur and pioneer of the commercial space age. He's the CEO of Space Services and uh, of Celestis. His full um, bio, which is quite long, and it includes his early history, going back to Conestoga 1, 1982, everyone, is on our website. So you can read it at your leisure. I hope you do read it. And uh, we would like to talk with Charlie rather than read about him. So, Charlie, welcome back to the show. How are you? Uh, pleasure to be with you today, David. Nice to hear your voice. And likewise for you. So you've been a busy little critter for the past uh, couple of months. Um, yeah. <laughs> you want to... Give us some updates and news and, uh, you know, what's, what Celestis is planning and uh, 
maybe what happened, what didn't happen, and where your um, deep space mission is right now. Sure will. Yeah, it's been a hectic year. Um, I, I guess topped off by, uh, well, 12 months, I guess I'll say. It hasn't been a year yet. But uh, what I think our biggest event occurred uh, on January 8th where we were passengers on the very first Vulcan Centaur launch. Um, we were on, we actually did two missions with our memorial spaceflight missions uh, on Vulcan Centaur. We were, had 70 uh, of our flight capsules on the Astrobotic Peregrine mission, which was slated to be our second journey to the lunar surface. And we had 268 flight capsules on the Centaur 5, which inaugurated our first ever Voyager deep space service, uh, which is on a two-year journey out to about 160 million kilometer uh, from Earth uh, uh, heliocentric orbit. So uh, we were thrilled, obviously, to to be able to do for the first time two missions, and we we batted 500 on those missions, which is kind of what you do in space sometimes. The uh, I think probably most of your listeners know that our astrobotic mission uh, did not make it to the lunar surface, although it nailed the the translunar injection orbit, Centaur put it perfectly uh, on the way to the moon. It just by the time it got there, the moon was no longer there. There was a, a propulsion issue. So that mission came back and uh, returned to Earth, basically uh, providing our orbital surface where we orbit the Earth and re-enter like a shooting star. Um, we're, we're teeing it up to fly to the moon again. Our, our, our missions come with a service guarantee, so if we don't make it the first time, everybody gets to fly a second sample of uh, either DNA or uh, cremated remains uh, at no cost. And we're looking at uh, late next year for what we call our destiny flight, which will be a reflight of our uh, astrobotic mission uh, on a different provider, not not able uh, due to NDA to announce the provider of that yet, but we're far along and looking forward to completing that mission. <clears throat> Our Enterprise mission was a glorious success uh, and is now uh, taking five of the original Star Trek uh, cast and creator as well as uh, Rod Roddenberry's DNA, the son of Gene and Majel. And, and those participants were Gene and Majel Roddenberry, Michelle Nichols, Jimmy Doohan, and DeForest Kelly, as well as two NASA astronauts and 260 of our closest friends from around the world out into deep space on what I believe to be the first ever commercial deep space mission. And we're excited. We're we're in the midst of building our tracking application for that mission and should have it available and, and people can watch where it's going here. Uh, you know, I want to be optimistic and say we'll have it up in about 60 days. And we're sort of um, just 
basking in the success of that enterprise mission. Does that it, was go ahead. I was going to say, does it keep going in deep space to interstellar stellar space like Voyager, or does it have an ultimate destination, or what, what's yeah, the projectile? It's a, yeah, it's a heliocentric orbit, David. Uh, it uh, crosses the orbit of Mars and crosses the orbit of Venus on its uh, very, very, very long-term orbit around the sun. So it's uh, uh, it's not, didn't have the propulsion to escape the solar system, but it's the furthest out there mission we've ever done by, by leaps and bounds. So it orbits indefinitely around the sun, is that the idea? Yes, sir. That's correct. And indefinitely is truly indefinite then, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, you know, assuming they don't hit a random asteroid or something like that. But yes, um, the uh, trajectory is what we would call a permanent uh, uh, orbit. What would it take to do a truly interstellar kind of mission? Is that you need a lot more propulsion? Yeah, you've got to. I think it's like escape velocity is like a, a 12 and a half kilometer per second. Uh, I remember that from my sun jammer days, um, and uh, that would be an, an escape mission, very much like the NASA New Horizon mission that actually has Clyde Tombaugh's ashes on it. Uh, he'll probably be the first person to escape the solar system, if you if you will, at least symbolically. Um, so, um, so you're not going to relaunch the lunar mission on astrobotics when they try again. Is I, know, I know you don't want to name the, the provider, but uh, is that the idea? And will you still be using Vulcan, or might you go on SpaceX, or maybe New Glenn? Uh, yes. How's <laughs> that for a nice, vague answer? Really, literally, due to NDAs, can't say anything more than I've said, but... Um, uh, we'll be making that announcement, I hope, within the next 30 to 60 days also. Um, people have been sending me emails saying that they ought to go on a on an IM mission from your hometown of Houston there, but I, I don't know if they're going to do another lunar lander. I guess they are, but... I've, I think they're in it for the long term. We we Obviously, we talked to all the clips. I, I, actually, I don't think we... we we reached out to the Draper guys, but we've had conversations with all of them. All of them are receptive. Like any business decision, it comes down to timing and cost as to what's best for us. And when I say us, I mean our clients. Um, I was really surprised that the, the Vulcan works so well on the first flight. I, I, I thought that would be your point, your first point of uh of risk would be first flight ever. Will it really work? Yeah. And uh, man, I was stunned. It was it, it it went off really well. I was not a high confidence holder in astrobotics, but uh, it's hard to land on the moon. Hey, space is hard. I've got the T-shirt that proves it. Yeah, uh, Vulcan. You know, I guess if you look, I, I, I've never I've been in this business my whole career, which is getting long these days. I've never been more impressed with a provider, and I'm impressed with uh, many providers, but ULA was was an amazing group to work with. 
you know, they had 160-plus missions in a row going into it. And uh, so there's enough heritage there in the company, and they had the systems and the capabilities to uh, – they nailed it. And, in fact, we had actually purchased an insurance policy on Vulcan. You, today you cannot purchase insurance for a lunar lander because there's no clear record for it. But uh, it was not needed. It was an amazing, truly amazing experience uh, to be there, to, to watch it go, and to see how well it performed. How long have you been doing Celestis? We founded the company in 1995. We did our first mission um, on a Pegasus out of the Canary Islands in 1997. Uh the Tranquility and Enterprise flights were our 21st and 22nd mission overall. And, uh, you know, I like to say we put more people in space than all the governments and private companies in the world combined. And then I add the parentheses symbolically. But uh, we, we've, we've, we've been around. We've, we've served a lot of clients. What country provides you the most, I don't know if customers of the or the right yeah. word, but I guess they're customers, the most yeah. customers, because I know funeral customs are so different in different countries. Well, it's the U.S., uh, and I think that's mostly because we're here, and our partner in the funeral service industry is the largest funeral service provider in the U.S. Um, I, it's a global market, global business. We serve clients from... 35-plus countries, but uh, the largest number of people are, are here, in, here in the USA. And what percentage are doing DNA versus remains? I think it's – DNA is getting up to where it's about 20% of our business. We introduced that service a few years ago uh, to serve people that don't elect – cremation as final disposition, but it turns out a good percentage of our DNA clients are people that are alive when we launch them. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I want to do with myself and, and my current dog, because uh, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd like to, to be around when they, when they make the flight. Um, what percentage do you do of people's pets and uh, favorite animals? Uh it's probably about 5% of our business. Um, I certainly have taken advantage of, of it for three of my Labradors, but uh, we had uh, uh, a kitty cat and a couple of uh, puppies on the missions that we just flew. So I was an early adopter of that on your suborbital flight. So, um, yeah. <laughs> um, I have your first question. It's going to be a controversial mm -hmm. one. Are you okay with that? Mm -hmm. I'm fine with that, sure. Todd in San Diego, he said, um, how do you respond, and I suspect you will have to continue to respond to this because it did get traction among the naysayer population that burying people on the moon is culturally insensitive, not just to Native Americans, but maybe others, and maybe environmentally insane. How, how do you respond to this, and do you see it as a growing future challenge? Um, 
It's an interesting question. Um, the first thing I say is I respect everybody's right to have their opinion. Uh, we have let's start environmentally. We have always, from from the get go, operated in what we call an environmentally benign fashion. I think some people think, oh, they go up there and drop a bunch of stuff on the moon surface. And no, of course not. We don't. We uh, fly our individual flight capsules embedded in a spacecraft that lands on the moon and stays there as a permanent monument. Um, in terms of culturally insensitive, who's, you know, whose culture or whose religion do you want to? Uh, we have a photo of 20,000 Buddhist monks celebrating our launch at takeoff. Uh, so there are a variety of cultures and a variety of religions. And at least in America, we don't ever subject our space missions to a religious test. Uh, in fact, in America, we came here to get rid of those kinds of things. Uh, I think so long as we uh, are sensitive, as long as we serve people who see this as sort of the polar opposite of any sort of desecration, I, I, somebody used that term, of the lunar surface, it gets into questions about who owns the moon and, you know, are we really going you – know, here's my take on it, David – and you've known me long enough to know this. I am a Jerry O'Neill founding. He gave me my first job in space because I've been a believer from the get-go that humans need to uh, go out beyond Earth. That without that, you know, I, we were using the term multiplanetary species long before uh, it became more in fashion. We believe that humans are an appropriate species to take ourselves throughout the solar system. Well, if you do that, you're going to take all of your memorials, all of your rituals, all of your celebrations with you. And wouldn't it be strange if somehow due to some particular religion's claim that we couldn't, you know, can you see there'll be a, there'll be a time in a, in, it, you know, pick your number. 50 years, we're going to have hundreds to thousands of people living and working on the moon. Some of them are going to die there. And when they do, do you really believe that, that because some particular religion has said, hey, we own the moon for our purposes, we aren't going to be able to honor them. We're not going to be able to uh, respectfully um, give them a, a, a uh, a burying site, a niche, uh, a monument, would, that would just pretty much end human exploration of the solar system if we took that sort of an attitude. So, and, you know, so there, NASA put the first with us, hired us, if you will, to uh, make Gene Shoemaker the first person honored uh, by being quote-unquote buried on the moon. And we're in a period right now where because people aren't living and working there uh, we might not if, if for some reason we say okay nobody is 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 honored on the moon but in a hundred years that's just going to be 
it's not going to be something that we do, in my view. Uh, I just I don't see how that works. And having a expansive, positive human presence throughout the solar system. So I'm a little troubled by uh, people saying, "Okay, here's my religion." And by the way, there are religions that want <laughs> to uh, honor their and, and believe that loved ones go to the moon after they've passed. So as I look more and more into it, I think the smart thing to do, we have a really good regulatory structure right now, which, by the way, we we went through. And, and I helped write that in, in the original 1984 Commercial Space Launch Act. We said, what's, what is, quote, unquote, allowed for uh, space missions? Well, first, it can't violate our national security. Second, it can't run contrary to public safety. And third, you cannot um, abrogate international law. If you meet all of those criteria, and that includes environmental degradation, uh, you should be free. And that's, I think, what, what many in the space community believe. If we're not able to go out and do things in space as free people, What's the point? Well, I believe uh, our Constitution also says that government uh, cannot favor one religion over another. Right. Right. I, there's a, a, um, a professor, I believe she's in, I want to say San Jose State, wrote an article, basically said, hey, we got this thing called the First Amendment. The United States government does not set a state religion, and, and that's Charlie the non-lawyer language. But, yes, we do have a, as I said, uh, as I look at it, a lot of the things we did to set up America, which to me is a great country, not perfect, but great, was to escape the yoke of religions telling you what you could and could not do um, and so uh, again, I, I I think it all depends on how you how you view things. I, again, I try to be respectful, but at the same time, nobody owns the moon, David. Um, <laughs> well, there was a guy early on. He was around even when I was starting the space show, who was selling pieces of the moon. Dennis Hope, do you remember him? I sure do. Yeah. I yeah. I even have deeds to the moon and Mars. <laughs> right. That that uh, he sent me. I don't think they have. Maybe they have some historical value. I don't know, but or comedic value. But um, <laughs> um, he he was selling deeds to property on the moon and that. But yeah, nobody holds the moon. Uh, you have another email, and uh, mm-hmm. listeners, you can call in and talk to Charlie eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. This is from June in Portland, and June says. Uh, I know Celestis has added new missions to their inventory. Can you quickly, or take as much time as you want, to summarize your opportunities for flying DNA, pets, humans, ashes, remains? Uh, It's more than just suborbital now and orbital, which is what it used to be. Well, we started out with orbital missions. That was, and then, and then because. Uh, there were no commercial orbital <laughs> missions after um, we, we flew orbital missions up through uh, 2001, 
when we had a uh, the I guess the first of our now four missions that didn't succeed. Um, and at that point, 2001, there, for those of us who were around then, there was no such thing as SpaceX and Falcon 9 or anything. There was the government missions only. And it took a while for, um, uh, we were actually on the third Falcon 1 mission. Uh, it took a while for there to be a commercial space launch industry. So during that period, we invented the, the suborbital service, which we call Earthrise, and it's been a very popular service for us also. Uh, mostly, well, today, totally flown out of Spaceport America, even before Spaceport America here in New Mexico. Um, but so to answer uh, June's question, we have suborbital missions, which we call Earthrise. We do those about every couple years. We have orbital missions, which is which has been our uh, primary service since we began, and and we have a uh, an orbital mission out of Vandenberg in June, and an orbital mission out of Cape Canaveral in October of 2024. As I mentioned before, we did our first lunar mission at NASA's request in 1999. Thought we'd have our second one done by now, but looking forward to doing another one of those late next year. And then we've had, since I promised Major, and I'll tell you the story real quickly, uh, we were at the ceremonies for our very first launch, and I had approached Majel through uh, Lori Garver, of all people, who knew her very well. And I'd seen that NASA, by the way, NASA has flown every mission that we've flown before we did. <laughs> they were really the groundbreaking service and memorial services. But I asked Majel if we could put Gene Roddenberry along with Timothy Leary and 22 other folks on our very first mission, the Founders Flight. And she said, Charlie, I'm happy to do this. I know it's what Gene would have wanted, but I'm going to hold you to the fact that you've got to promise me that when it's my time, uh, you'll fly the two of us together on a deep space forever mission. And being 28 years old and full of vim and vigor, of course I said yes, not having a clue as to how we would do it in 1997, but knowing that we would eventually get there. And uh, that was the birth of the Voyager service, uh, Deep Space Service, which we've now successfully accomplished um, uh, just this, just what, over a little over a month and a half ago. And so we have four services. We, um, we had been flying, except for a seven-year hiatus when we couldn't get a launch back in 2001, uh, we've been flying roughly every 15 months since then. However, in 2023, we conducted four missions, and in 2024, we plan to do four, uh, four additional missions, and so the pace of flight is increasing fairly substantially. And, and if I may go into why, why, there's really three reasons why that pace has picked up. The first is obvious. There is now a commercial space launch industry. 
which, as you alluded to, we started in 1982 with the first ever private launch into space uh, from Matagorda Island, Texas, a couple of islands up from Boca Chica. Um, so being able to get there is a lot, it's a lot easier to have people sign up with you when you can fly them. That's clearly the first reason. The second reason is the, the growth in the cremation rate um, in worldwide, but especially in the U.S. When we started, the cremation rate here in this country was about 22%. It's now over 50%. It'll be over 80% within a decade, according to knowledgeable people. So second reason was more and more people are choosing at the time, the only thing that they could do was cremation. Now they have a DNA. The third and most important is that the funeral industry has changed dramatically since we started. And I think we were one of the early, what I call new funeral services, sort of like new space, uh, where you could send a portion of your remains to space. Well, today you can become a diamond. You can become a reef ball. You can become a tree. There's so many options, and that reflects, here it comes, market demand. Uh, boomers, me, you, are making different decisions about not only what we want to do to celebrate and memorialize our service, but what we want to do for our loved ones. And that has been really a hockey stick in terms of, yes, there will always be people that say, bury me in a plot in the family church next to grandma. There will always be those folks. But increasingly, uh, very increasingly, people are making different decisions. I like to say boomers are selfish. We want it to be about us. <laughs> we want an experience. We want to, we want to have our friends come and see the biggest candle lit in our, uh, uh, in our honor. And those changes are not only U.S., they're they're global as well. So for all those reasons, we've been uh, growing at an annual rate of about 50% for the last five years. I know that my son's dog died a couple of years ago. Michael, he's the son that you met on that suborbital flight. So mm -hmm. um, they cremated their dog, and then they went online, and there must be a thousand options of companies yep. that will take the option, the, the ashes, and turn them into various kinds of monuments or plaques or something right. so you don't have to just have an urn of ashes sitting on your mantle. You can indeed, you have I, a doorstop. Lost, you, you could have anything. Indeed. I just lost my precious 16-year-old yellow lab named Buttercup. I'm going to put her on the moon. <laughs> so, you know? Yeah, so um, lots of variations. Today. Exactly. Exactly. And that I think that's a good thing. I, you know, that's an editorial comment on my part. But I, I think choice is always good. And um, again, uh, it's just uh, David. You be well. You see, you just described it. Uh, you couldn't. Michael couldn't have done <laughs> what he could not have found those many options, even when we started in the 1990s. No, you just put the ashes on the on the wall. Right. Or what I did with my earlier dogs was they loved water, so I illegally mm -hmm. placed them in the San Francisco Bay. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you have a caller waiting. So uh, okay. let's take take your caller. Uh, good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? 
This is Tim from Huntsville. Hi, Tim. Go for it. Good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. Uh, well, Mike, well, you talked about the. I'm not familiar with the what this um, with just with your business, and I was just wondering the Voyager program, the Voyager Deep Space, um, I guess, uh, service. Do you piggyback, or do you have a dedicated launcher to, uh, I guess, to take uh, people's remains out to interplanetary space? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a piggyback. We were attached to the Centaur 5 uh, right uh, below the payload uh, on a ring that's permanently part of the Centaur. And uh, the when, when Centaur goes interplanetary or to the moon, they need to get rid of that stage such that it doesn't come roaring back <laughs> and hit planet Earth. Uh, and so they have what they call a graveyard orbit trajectory that they put it in, which is more or less a permanent uh, disposition of the Centaur stage. So we, we are, uh, ride that Centaur deep space stage. Now, how often do they launch Centaurs out to interplanetary space? Is this only whenever NASA launches, a, uh, I guess, a spa- an interplanetary space probe? Lunar or interplanetary is my understanding. I think there may be some very high geotransfer orbits where they do that as well. Uh, but it's not, it's not, it's not like every week like you see, or several times a week like you see SpaceX doing these days. Okay, so I, so, so, uh, so I get from you that sometimes whenever they launch a, a communication satellite out to geo, uh, you catch a ride on there, and they and they take that rocket out a little bit further than Geo, correct? Correct, yeah. Okay. Also, you brought up the, the you were bringing up something about, um, I guess, the lane claims on the moon and Mars. Well, David mentioned a, a gentleman who was selling lots on that. I think that's a little different in that uh, sixty-seven outer space treaty. As, as I read it, and I believe as most people read it, prohibit uh, ownership of the moon. It's kind of like the law of the sea. You can go there, you can mine it, you can do things on it, but you cannot claim ownership of the of the lunar surface. It's my understanding. Okay. Well, that's it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Sure, thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Uh, listeners, you too can... Give us a call. Tim is off the line, 866-687-7223. Uh, this is a fun one. Jack in Dallas says, I'm, I'm curious, on your uh, uh, deep space mission, is there anything written on the side of your spacecraft, and, and how big is that spacecraft that is orbiting, where if someone was out there taking pictures or uh, you could see it with James Webb clearly or something. It would say Celestis Memorial Capsule or anything like that that would tell people what it was because I'm assuming there's no communications coming from this spacecraft. Is that correct? That is correct, David. And we don't have anything on the side of Centaur, but each individual capsule is inscribed with the person's name who is uh, or the person's or the uh, Labrador Retriever, who's, who is inside of that capsule. So the, the, the 
spacecraft itself is just a permanently attached uh, trapezoidal box. We flew two of those boxes which were attached to the Centaur, not uniquely identified otherwise other than through the uh, names that are inscribed on the individual flight capsules. And it, it stays in that orbit for infinity. Until, or until it bumps into something. So it, yes. it doesn't need to be boosted or have That's power correct. given to it or anything like that. That's correct. The third centaur burn, which, so the first, so the, the Vulcan puts centaur in the payload into orbit. They burn that centaur once to circularize the orbit. The second burn this time sent, uh, astrobotic toward the moon. And the third burn sent us toward deep space. All of that was done within two hours of uh, launch so that we knew we were on our way uh, the evening that we flew, when or the you, morning that we flew. When do you get to that orbit? Are you there yet? Or No, it's, a, it's about a two-year uh, journey out there, David. And as I said, we've got uh, a guy that has built tracking sites. I think he's currently operating one for... Uh, the the roads the Tesla Roadster that's in deep space, where you can literally go and see where it is. We just got the final orbital parameters from ULA this week. He's building that site. I expect he'll have it up, as I said, certainly within 60 days, so that anybody can come to our website and uh, track our spacecraft on its way to that orbit, and then once it's in the orbit, you'll be able to track it also. Track is a misnomer. It's not active tracking, but it's ba- it's a mathematical projection of where it'll be based on all the parameters of when, it was la- when and where it was launched. Uh, you have another phone call, but first a real short email from Ben in Phoenix, and uh, Ben says, um, what are your Mars plans, and uh, will you? be doing burials on Mars, and can you just pick any location to come down on Mars, or the moon for that matter, or, do, or does your landing location have to be approved by any entity? Well, all commercial space missions are approved through the FAA process, So, uh, and we have to go through that. I, it's a little-known fact, which I will share, was the very first action the FAA ever took was a mission approval for the original Celestis company, which we are a uh, follow-on to, to fly 10,000 capsules into the Van Allen Belt orbit. And that went through a mission approval process. Uh, it was the first one that Jenna Dorn, at, at, at then it was at the DOT, uh, issued. And it was a big press release and uh, uh Deke Slayton was our president then, and uh, we we have today the, the very first FAA approval. So all of our missions are all of our commercial missions. If you fly on a government mission, there's a different approval process, but we fly on commercial missions these days. So all of those have to be approved. Um, back to Mars, yeah. Again, are people going to be living and working on Mars? I believe they are. Are we going to be conducting uh, memorial services on Mars? I believe that we will. Will we be trying to land on Mars? There you're going to get into, you know, the moon is, pardon me, a dead planet. 
so there's not a lot of issues about contaminating the environment and that kind of thing. I think there will be to the, you know, my plan really between us here on national radio, I expect we would first try a Phobos or Deimos landing because again, they're not living planets. I don't know how I feel about the level of planetary protection we can provide. Now, what we fly is completely inert. It is dead. It is ashes or it's a DNA substance that is completely inert. So there's really no prospect of contamination, but I think it'll be a harder, um, harder sell. process to go through to, to land on a planet, particularly where we think there might have been or might be life. And we, again, we always are respectful of the environment. The whole company's a bunch of space geeks and the, you know, people say, oh, you're junking up low Earth orbit. Of course we're not. We fly on something that's going there anyway. We never get released. We re-enter and burn up at the same time it does. So our philosophy from the get-go is to be environmentally benign. Uh, you have another phone call. Um, mm-hmm. Good afternoon, caller. Who are you? Where are you? Thank you for your call. Uh, this is Sherry Bell. I'm in Las Vegas. Hi, Sherry. How are you today? Fine, fine. I want to say I have plans to buy the next um, mission, that, like the one that just went on, the Eternal one. And I was I tell you my plan is to bring my friends and my family and to celebrate my life while I am alive, you know, to send my DNA. And then I just have a other plan of, you know, cremate me you know, and do whatever you need. But my family, my whole... My whole funeral, I suppose you would call it, you know, or send off. I hope to do while I'm alive. Just, just telling people. That's yeah, my I plan. Think that's, that's, that's great, Sherry, and and thank you. And you know, you you touch on something that is a really important part of our service. For every mission we do, we do a three day event at the launch site, where on day one. A, a, on day one, this last time we had we had over 600 guests arrive at the Radisson Resort on the port in Port Canaveral. On day one, nobody knows anybody. They're you know they're they're complete strangers. On day two, we take people whenever we're allowed to right up next to the rocket for a tour of the of the vehicle. We conduct a uh, a non-sectarian memorial service, which is webcast around the world. And then on day three, we go to a, to a private site that we've leased, and we have all 600 folks there sharing that launch experience. And now when you're alive, it, it's a great experience, but you can imagine that for the folks who have loved ones on board who have passed away, all these people arrive a little bit Hey, what's going to happen? They're still in the midst of grief. And we don't eliminate grief, but I will guarantee you that there are no other funeral services or memorial services on the planet that have as much cheering and high-fiving as we do when that rocket lights up and it's taking off. It's a very emotionally compelling send-off. And I know that your friends and you will just, well, have a very... Special feeling, and I figured this out a long time ago because I was originally in the commercial rocket business, and I knew that I loved 
seeing any space launch, but when it was my rocket, what an amazing feeling. And that's what the people that come to our events feel. They, they, I had a person years ago tell um, Mr. Musk, he said, you know, you may think that's your rocket, but I know my dad is on it and it's my rocket. And, and that's a feeling that's not, I've never, I've never seen duplicated anywhere else. Right. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's actually really wonderful to hear. It makes me even more determined to do it. So, <laughs> Sherry, I did their suborbital flight with my dog around 2006, yeah. and son Michael and his girlfriend at the time and I went to Las Cruces for this three-day service and everything. So <sighs> there were lots and lots of people out there in the desert, and, and the yeah. roads were not existent all of that back then. And I didn't see anybody crying. I mean, this was, man, it it was a, a funeral send-off, but it was joyous as could be. It, it's kind of like tailgating at a really big, popular <laughs> sporting club. But, but even, even at the dinner and at the memorial service they had, I, I, I forget where it was. Maybe it was in Albuquerque or, or at White Sands. Um, no, it was in Las Cruces. It was in Las Cruces. Right I mean, yeah. it, it was amazing. And then we had to take the bus to get out there because your car couldn't make it. And uh, there was a motorcycle group there that, you know, looked mm-hmm. like uh, the Hells Angels. And, and they were great. And they were sending their buddy. He loved space. And so they yeah. sent oh, his wow. buddy to space. And, uh, yeah, it was a memorial service and a funeral service, but you would not know it. And, uh, yeah. you know, there were people uh, with drinks and, I guess, probably some beer and who the hell knows what else out there, uh, you know, waiting for the up aerospace rocket to launch. We smelled a little you-know-what from here and there. Yeah, I was going to say, it'd be a great place <laughs> to be high. It was, it was <laughs> to this day, I still remember it as one of the most amazing experiences ever, and it wasn't sad. I mean, it was like, right. wow, what a, what a way to... To record and respect your someone who is no longer with you, or even a dog who doesn't know what the hell you're mm-hmm. doing anyway. But um, uh, yeah, oh, good, you know, good. Yeah. You, you definitely want to see your own service if you can, you know, do it with mm-hmm. DNA. In my and, and I want, yeah, and I want my daughter and my grandson, my especially especially my grandson, you know, to to be to send me with joy, you know. Well, they will, and it'll be yeah. far more meaningful than, than going to a traditional funeral, even if it's yeah. a cremation funeral. Uh, I agree. It'll, it'll be yeah. far more meaningful and, and memorable. And, and uh, instead of having pictures of a, of a casket in the church or wherever, you're going to have pictures of a rocket launching with your, you being on it. So, <laughs> Which I mean, is way more cool. Plus, they send you – do you still provide a video and send pictures, Charlie? Oh yeah, absolutely yeah. And the uh, the family video is a is a must accompaniment of everything we do, and it's a capture of those three days professionally produced. So wow, I mean it's um, it's not like any funeral service you're ever going to experience. So. Right, it's an out of this world. It's a, ab- absolutely. And then, um, how close do you get to the sun in that orbit? In, well, we're we're out. As I say, we we get as close as just on the inside of Venus, okay, okay. and as far away as the outside of Mars. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
How long does it take? How long does one full heliocentric orbit take? A good question. I do not have an answer for that. Uh, good one. We'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. But again, yeah. if you think, it's how, basically, it's if you're between Venus and Mars, uh, uh-huh. where Earth is, you know, it's going to be right. uh, one year plus type orbit. I would yeah, guess. I was I was kind of thinking that too, you know. But when you said heliocentric, I thought maybe that takes longer because I'm not a, a person who knows orbital dynamics. That's not my area of expertise. <laughs> Neither do I. But fortunately, okay. the people we hire to do it do understand. Yes. It. <laughs> yeah, we all know people who know that. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. All right. Okay. I'll let somebody else. Thank you. It's been nice. It's been actually really Thank nice. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, uh-huh. Listeners, you uh, can also call 866-687-7223. Email remains drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, Paul is in Denver, and uh, he says some of us really think that space settlement might someday be possible at places other than Mars, including maybe up in the clouds of Venus where it can approximate Earth conditions maybe even on some of the asteroids or near-Earth objects that we have visited of late. Do you have any plans for any kind of missions to, say, the upper echelon of the Venus clouds or maybe some of the outer places that people talk about as possibly having life like Europa and some of the other asteroids that have recently been visited? I know they're much further out. There's no commercial rockets going out there yet. But someday, do you see expansion into that area? Oh, sure. I see expansion throughout the solar system. I, I probably won't be around for that. But, you know, we we set up Celestis with the idea that we're going to be a forever company for just the reasons that we've talked about. Humanity's going to space. Humanity's going to live throughout the solar system. And, you know, at least until we become immortal, uh, there's going to be a need for our service. Um, you have another uh, email. Teddy is in Phoenix, and he says, um, when you started out, you guys were the only ones. I noticed on the ULA mission there was some competition, although we didn't hear much about it. Is the funeral industry for space becoming competitive now? Uh, not really. Our biggest competitors are the other choices that people have. Now, there are one or two companies that have done one or two missions over 20 years. If we're right about humanity and the market, there will be other service providers. Uh, we'll always sort of be the Coca-Cola, we'll be the icon, we'll be the pioneers. We hope to always be the best providers. But uh, I would expect at some point there'll be others providing the service. Uh, and actually that doesn't I mean we're we're happy about that because we look real good <laughs> compared to everybody else. Um, a- absolutely, um, um, and you hopefully you will stay looking real right. good. And you're still operating out of Houston, is that correct? Yeah, except uh, David, uh, my wife and I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, two years ago. So we've been running the chairman's office out of Santa Fe, but the company is headquartered in Houston, that's correct. How do you like being in Santa Fe? 
just absolutely love it. Wish I'd done it 20 years ago. <laughs> um, what are we missing uh, about um, either your current mission? What's next? And uh, if what are your cutoff dates for uh, wanting to get someone's remains or their DNA on a current mission? Do you have like a one-year leeway or you have to do something within three yeah, months or it, what? Yeah, it's usually about 90 days. Depends on who we're flying with. But our Harmony flight, which is our next orbital mission, which is flying in June, has been closed for a while. Uh, our um, Serenity flight, which will fly out of Cape Canaveral, will close in May of this year. Uh, so you, you know, so, and it's going to fly in October. So there's some lead time. Particularly, remember, we are always what's called a secondary payload, which is we on over space. And so uh, providers like to get get those missions in early, buttoned up, and ready to, to fly early. So it's any anywhere the, from 90 days to six months prior to a mission. Um, okay. And... Um... All of your your missions and and your information, it's all on your website, correct? So people cool. can get the details. Yeah, Celestis dot com. We also are pretty active on social platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and X. So you can follow us in any number of ways. You can once you reach us, you can leave your name and contact information, and you'll get newsletter updates. I also do more or less a monthly live stream on Facebook and YouTube where we take questions or have guests describe the mission that's coming up. We had uh, Rod Roddenberry uh, in advance of, of this mission, uh, in advance of the Enterprise mission. And, again, those are all pretty much announced. Once you get on our mailing list until you hit unsubscribe, you'll hear from us. Um. This is an interesting question, Randy Tucson, and he says, I'm wondering if on your ULA mission you had a lot of interview activity or discussion with Tori Bruno and what you thought of him and what he thought of space burial and what you guys were doing. Tori's been on the space show, and he seems like a terrific guest, one of the best guests David has ever had. He is an amazing Person, I, he, he embraced us. He flew. He, he and his wife's DNA flew on our deep space mission. He uh, was very affable. He hosted us at uh, the Decatur, Alabama factory where they were building the Vulcan. Uh, he's a real. He's the real deal. Uh, that's what I can say. I'm very impressed with him, and uh, uh, thankful that uh, the space community gets. His energy and skills, just uh, wonderful man. Did you hear anything that you can report to us on possible sale or acquisition or merger of ULA? Only the rumors that everybody else is hearing. <laughs> so you have no inside information? No, sir. Um, well, he he is a great space show guest. I, I hope to, to get him back on the, on the show and... Uh, uh, you know he's he's not inflammatory like a lot of other people, so he's, right. he's a terrific no, person to work with. He, he was really again. I uh, and here's the thing: is you know, 
what a great leader he is by the quality of the people that work for him. And up and I had people on the shop floor in Decatur come up and shake my hand and say how thrilled they all were to be a part of this mission. And literally everyone I worked at uh, worked with at ULA were just top flight people. It's really an amazing group. Does Celestis do its own payload integration, or who does that for you? The provider. So in the case of uh, Astrobotic, or in case of case of the lunar mission, Astrobotic receives our capsules, does the integration. In the case of our deep space mission, uh, we took them down to uh, Florida, and we were there while they were doing the. Colby Youngblood, our our president hand-delivered 268 capsules and was there as they were being loaded onto the Centaur stage itself. So we're we're participants, but they, you know, they kind of are careful about who they let touch their stuff. Um, here's another one, uh, Linda, and Linda's in uh, Albuquerque, not too far from you. And mm. uh, Linda says your lander had it worked with Astrobotic was to be a vertical soft landing and to remain standing. And yep. I guess your capsules are inside that vertical lander. Had it gotten to the moon but crashed on the moon, that would have still been reaching the destination. So question number yep. one, given that it did not land vertically, would that have been a mission success or failure? And would you be offering a reflight? And number two, if it had crashed, would the capsules have been damaged as they spread out or get however they get treated on the surface of the moon? Would they have been pulverized or would they have been intact? Um, so first, uh, we our contract is very uh, carefully worded as to what a success is. And a, a tip over or any, literally any kind of uh, surface landing of any variety is a success. We have reached the moon. Um, I don't, I, you know, it's hard to say because you don't know all the scenarios of failure. I can tell you that we, our capsules are very, they're aerospace engineered capsules. They have to pass a thermal test, a vacuum test, all kinds of tests. What I can tell you is that we had one of our suborbital missions where the parachute failed and everything came crashing to planet Earth. Uh, all of our capsules, some of them were bent a little bit of, uh, but only one of them was slightly pierced when we got them back. So they're, they're engineered pretty carefully uh, to... Uh, to survive a lot of the exigencies of spaceflight. But we go to great lengths to try to let people know that, you know, here, here, are, all the, here are all the things that can happen, and if you don't like them, then you probably don't want to sign up with us. Well, I would have been fine if it had crashed on the surface. Yeah, yeah. But everybody was. I mean, they got they – got, we reached space. We got the capsules back. As I said, a couple of them were dented. Uh, but people took that as kind of a, of a souvenir of spaceflight. Are they reusable, the ones you got back? We, uh, we chose to fly most of them again because they were untouched. The ones that were dented, we 
because our process guarantees success, uh, we always take more ashes than we're going to fly, and then when a success occurs, we scatter them near the launch site in accordance with laws and regulations. So we had additional samples left over for the ones that we decided to re-encapsulate and refly. Probably uh, your last question, since I told you we'd, we'd do an hour, because I know you've been a little under the weather. Richard is in Reno, and he says, uh, any chance that Celestis will join the trend of entrepreneurial companies wanting to go public, either through a SPAC or some other means, or are you planning to remain private? Um, <laughs> good question. Given the SPAC results... To date, I'm gl- we looked at it. I'm glad we didn't do it. Um, our plans are not to go public. We've been privately held for almost 30 years, and uh, at least as long as I'm the CEO and manager, uh, I like not being encumbered by ex- excess rules and regulations. And, and you know, David, in our early days, we had to raise money, but we've been operating – on revenue streams for 20 years now. So I don't see that as being a lot different. We occasionally see private investment if we have a new project or something that we're going to do. But we're not really – the exit. we have other exit strategies for our interested investors, let me put it that way. Um, last question is my prerogative question. Years and years and years ago, I tried to fly – one of my dogs on a Falcon 1 flight. Do you remember that? And, mm-hmm. and SpaceX got go fever and launched the damn thing from uh, the island out there in the South Pacific. Quadrillion, yeah. From Quad and uh, plunged into the Pacific. Do you yeah. – so so uh, that I've been deep into the Pacific Ocean and uh, suborbital. Yeah. Uh, do you know where that thing crashed? Do you know where it is in the Pacific Ocean or how deep or where – where the the payload landed, and if anything, did the did the capsule survive the deep pressure? Do you know anything about it? I don't know. I suspect because it was not an explosive failure. As I recall, the failure was the second stage bumped into the first stage. Yeah, it was vice versa. sloshing <laughs> or something with the way they had fuel or something going on. Yeah, I suspect it's at the bottom of the ocean somewhere, but no, we haven't. <laughs> so you never found out where either. where it went down or, or where, no, where no. that is? So, so we, we never we never pursued it that far. We just reflew everybody. Well, so you you have offered unintentionally deep ocean service and mostly, <laughs> and mostly right. space service. It'd be great if they went to the Marianas Trench, but I don't think it was in that area. Uh, no. and then they, they could be really deep and... And really yeah. high. So I uh, always wondered if, if you knew where it went. So We I, did not pursue it. So. I'd, I'd plot it on a map. I wonder if SpaceX <laughs> knows where it crashed. Uh, don't know. Uh, next time I, I talk to Gwen, I think I'll, I'll ask her. I'd like to pinpoint that on a, on a map, although who knows where, where it actually hit the bottom of the ocean with currents and yeah. stuff. So. Yeah. Charlie, have we left anything out? Have we omitted something you wanted to talk about or update us today or any news well, that we should know about? Yeah, just that with every mission, um, we support nonprofits. And so um, we 
supported everything from space camp. We sent kids to space camp. To, we support uh, environmental uh, missions. We uh, did tsunami relief with one of them. Um, and uh, the most recent mission, we supported the Michelle Nichols Foundation. Well, th- that's great. You've supported the space show for years as well, we, too. It goes without saying, yes, definitely. Um, listeners, at celestis.com. And uh, if you uh, want to find out more and, and see what uh, we're talking about, those of us that have uh, used your services, I would uh, recommend you email or, or give them a call and tell them you heard about it on the space show or, or from David and uh, check into it. And if you want to sort of attend your own funeral, do DNA. And <laughs> if you if you don't care about that, then uh, you, you can work with your ashes when your time comes. Uh, or you can still use DNA if you don't believe in or want to do cremation. So um, I completely recommend it and will continue to recommend it until I'm no longer here. I think it's one of the greatest experiences uh, I ever had. And my son, Michael, and his girlfriend, who didn't know anything about space, had a had a terrific time, and and Michael did, and uh, I've got their plaque hanging on the wall in my office, and uh, you know it's to me it's worth it, and um, it, it's you know it's a better memorial than looking at a tombstone in your picture, mm-hmm. you know from a grave, you know what I mean? It yeah. to me <laughs> it's better looking at that rocket launching. And uh, since it was suborbital, the canister came back, and you have it hanging inside the picture frame. That's a far better memorial than a, a cemetery plot with a headstone, as far as I'm concerned. But maybe. And I, I guess I, I do have one thing to add. We never really discussed pricing, which is important to people. Our missions begin at three thousand dollars. We, uh, for the suborbital, the orbital is $5,000. Deep space and the moon are $13,000. And with the average cost, the average cost of a U.S. funeral being around $10,000, we're not, you know, we're not as expensive as people think we might be. No, and um, you can get uh, low cost depending on your age. I don't know if anything's low cost, but <laughs> but these burial insurance contracts that you Right. See for you know seniors or for people you don't have to have any health insurance part or doctors or anything, and you can totally fund this with uh, insurance upon the time of your death. So uh, there, there's a lot of funding and financial ways to work with. We have a too. we have a lot of people that buy our contract prearranged so that they know that it's taken care of. They don't have to worry about whether their family wants to do it or not. And for those, we we um, um, run trust accounts where the money that you send us goes into a trust account and we don't get paid until we provide the service. So that gives people some level of certainty. used to get questions about how do I know you're going to be there when I pass away. Now that we're crossing the 30 years of existence uh, uh, marker, I, we don't get those questions nearly as often. And uh, do you work with most funeral companies in America if you yeah. Yeah. Want, want them to send DNA or ashes from your remains sure. or something? Yes, we do. We, we're partnered with uh, uh, 
a company that has 5,000 funeral homes in the U.S. But we work with uh, the mom and pop shops too. Somebody walks in and says, "I want that funeral thing," and uh, they'll call us up and we'll uh, we'll work with the the local funeral service provider. Okay. Well, uh, I look forward to uh, maybe seeing you at another space conference soon and. Uh, Mm. Uh, best of luck with keep on going and hopefully the next time you go to the moon you make it and uh, yeah. we will stay in touch and uh, listeners that's going to be it for today Bob Zimmerman comes back on Tuesday you'll certainly want to hear that show and we want to thank Charlie and Celestis for all that they do and for his returning to the show I sort of wanted you to tell the story about how challenging it was to do Conestoga and the commercial space launch. I don't know if you yeah. have the time to do it. We have so many new listeners. Or... Well, I'm I'm happy to. I, you know me. I like it. So, uh, in 1981, I met a gentleman named David Hanna from Houston, Texas, who had read Jerry O'Neill's Smithsonian article and said that changed my life. The difference between, and the same thing had happened to me, the difference between me and David was David was rich. And typical Houston can-do, he got together 57 investors and uh, hired Gary Hudson, of all people, to build the first ever private rocket for space called Percheron, which we blew up in the summer of, uh, 1981 on an island that one of our investors owned called Matagorda Island, beautiful barrier island in Texas. Uh, Toddy Wynn was the owner. He also was a major owner of the Dallas Cowboys, so he would have the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders down to sun themselves on his beach. Just typical Texas big ridge. Okay? Yeah. It's like drill, drill, drill an oil well, see if it works. Well, it didn't work. But that day after we blew up the Percheron, I was sitting in my hotel room in Rockport, Texas, and a gentleman by the name of Chris Kraft called. He said, I have Max Vijay here, and we have a propulsion engineer named Henry Poole, and we'd like to send him down to see what you're looking to do, see if we can help you. You know, and uh, they sent Henry down, Henry looked around, and he said, well, what you're doing, Mr. Hanna, doesn't violate any laws of physics, but you know the French are doing the same thing. They're building this rocket called Ariane, and they're going to spend a billion dollars to get there. I don't think you want to spend a billion dollars, do you? David demurely said, no, I don't. So he recommended that we move to solid rocket propulsion. Uh, we uh, hired... Uh, Lee Shearer, the former director of Kennedy Space Center, Max Seger, the legendary engineer who holds the patent on the shuttle orbiter, and a gentleman named Deke Slayton, who had just retired as one of the original Mercury astronauts and head of the astronaut office at, at JSC. And they found a company in California that talked us into buying a Minuteman II solid rocket. And that was my job in Washington. I had to go around... 28-year-old kid in the halls of the Pentagon and NASA saying, I've got 57 Texans investors. Do you want to sell me a minute, man? Yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But Mr. Hanna had an ace in the hole, which was he was close personal friends with a gentleman named George 
Herbert Walker Bush. And Mr. Bush said, introduced this to the President's Science Advisor, Jay Keyworth. He said, Jay liked what we were doing. He said, don't break any laws, but try to help them. So, in fact, uh, I became the first and today only private citizen to ever purchase a Minuteman rocket from the federal government. Now, I didn't get to buy the rocket. They didn't want to transfer title, but they did say you can use it, but you have to return it in the same shape that we left loaned it to you, and if you don't, you have to pay the full acquisition cost. And by the way, we know you're not going to do it, so pay that money up front. <laughs> so we had the we had the rocket, and then I had to convince 11 separate federal agencies to approve the flight. I got a gun dealer's license. I got an export license. I got waiver from FAA model rocket rule. I, 11, we had a lot of support on the Hill, including current NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, who wanted to see the private sector get into space. So a little over a year after we blew up Pertron, we were on that island, uh, and we launched Conestoga 1 successfully, the first private rocket that ever reached outer space. And we thought it was going to be easy from there. <laughs> How naive we were. It took that much naivete, I think, for us to, to try to do it. But that's the short story of Conestoga 1. And, and we got all the firsts. We, you know, there's, there were a few firsts left, but we got all the firsts and we, well, we struggled because it was the space shuttle era and NASA was busily putting ELVs out of business and they viewed us, this little eight person company in Houston as a threat to the space shuttle. So it was, it was a challenge. Eventually, uh, we were able to win a contract from NASA for what was called the Comet program. But during that period, Deke got brain cancer and succumbed very shortly afterwards, and I think that was functionally the end of America's first private space company. But, boy, it was it was like living a dream, David, uh, spending those summers on Matagorda Island and seeing that launch. And, and we were the darling of the world. We were on NBC, ABC, CBS. They devoted an entire nightline, which was a very important show then to us. And uh, – but – that's where I first got my Spaces Hard T-shirt. <laughs> so, how, how long did it take to sort of normalize the commercial launch license process after you went through that 11 federal agency process? Uh, the 1984 Commercial Space Launch Act, which was in Bill Nelson's committee, and uh, they wanted to, you know, what we said is you can't build a business going to 11 federal agencies, and you have to go 11 and 0, by the way. Uh, right. <laughs> and so the the whole foundation for today's commercial space launches, everybody that's doing them, all began with that 84 legislation. Well, you're lucky you made 11 and 0 because it was unheard <laughs> of at the time. <laughs> it was uh, – we had a lot of support. People, that, you know, people like that that spunky spirit of Texans opening up the the space frontier on their own. They really did. It was very it was an easy sell uh, as long as it didn't threaten the shuttle. And, and in fact, we didn't threaten the shuttle. We were going for small payloads 
when everybody thought all the payloads were going to be big. So David had great insight into what was really going to make space commercial. I can remember having arguments with him about, hey, we got to build a bigger rocket. No, Charlie, we need it to be compact so that any group of people can go and do it. He was right. There's no doubt about it. Well, it's a great story. I, I love hearing it as much today as I've heard it many times. So, uh, glad you're around to still tell it. So, yeah, it was fun to live. I'll tell you that. Uh, okay, we look forward to um, our next visit. And uh, listeners, again, if you want more for information, you want to contact Celestis, and uh, they're in Houston, and their website website is celestis.com, and. Uh, I won't say see you on board, but um, <laughs> I hope you decide to do it. I, I think it'll be one of the most uh, glorious things you do, and it'll be great for your family, even if they're not space geeks. So keep it in mind. Uh, that's it for today. Uh, listeners, again, come back on Tuesday with Bob Zimmerman. Uh, goodbye from Charlie, David, and the Space Show. And, of course, everybody, keep looking up. Thank you, everyone, for your emails and your calls.